By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. The COP27 Climate Summit has just wrapped up. Unlike last year, this year's event did not feature a lot of grand pronouncements about how countries plan to phase out carbon emissions or limit the rise in global temperatures. But there was an important last-minute agreement on providing aid to poorer countries that have suffered some of the worst effects of climate change. The deal calls for the creation of a so-called loss and damage fund for vulnerable countries. But there are a lot of open questions about how it will work. So today we ask, what solutions to climate risks are emerging after COP27, and how will they be paid for? I'm your host, Jennifer Wong, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. On today's show, we're recapping COP27 with a great panel of guests, all of whom were on the ground in Egypt for the summit. I'm joined by Marie Durand and Swami Venkataraman of Moody's Investor Service, and by our colleague Robert Muir-Wood, Chief Risk Officer of Risk Management Solutions, a Moody's corporation entity. Robert is an expert on catastrophe risk, and the business response to climate change. I should note before we begin that different divisions within Moody's may have different views on a topic, and that views expressed on this podcast from one division should not be attributed to other divisions. And with that, welcome everyone to the podcast. First, I'd like to get some quick thoughts from each of you on what it was like being there in Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27. What was the atmosphere like, Marie? It was for me really exciting and, and overwhelming in, in equal measures. Um, I, I went to the event with two objectives. One was to explain how we integrate climate risk in our uh, credit analysis. Uh, and the second was to really listen and observe what uh, changes or, or shifts, incremental or ground shifts are happening uh, in various sectors, um, governments or private sectors, financial institutions alike. And, and the conference, really delivered on, on both objectives. Um, I think if I can briefly depict the scene, COP27, COP in general, is a, is a United Nations conference. So there are negotiations happening uh, between the, the so-called parties, the 190 plus countries. But alongside that, there's also a myriad of hundreds and, and maybe more of events um, happening, some, some big, some small, uh, scientists, academics, private sector, nonprofit, governments all coming together uh, to really uh, get their head around uh, around climate risk and, and opportunities. And the theme of, of this COP was implementation, action, if you want. And I think you could feel that in the uh, in these all these many rooms that everyone was really geared towards uh, finding a, a way forward. And Robert, what about you? Yeah, well, I've, I've been a, a lead author for a couple of IPCC reports in the past. I've never actually got as far as going to a COP. And uh, I was really interested to see what happens. And, you know, I mean, I know that the, the, the various levels of activity from being right at the center of things in the blue zone to being on the outside of all the, all the different tents, if you like. And uh, I mean, what most impressed me, I think, was the positivity, the, uh, the I mean, a few years back, there were so many talks about all the things we should be doing around mitigation and adaptation. And now I don't think anybody got on the speaker slot unless they, they actually had, had some proof that they, you know, they really had achieved something, accomplished something. And I thought, you know, I found that a, re a really 
refreshing that there was there was this reality to actually what was underway. And Swami, what about you? What I would like to add is twofold. One is, um, I think I spoke at four different uh, events, as did Marie, and, and Rob had his own engagements as well. I think it showed that even in the midst of negotiations between countries, there was plenty of interest to hear what Moody's had to say. So that was one. And the second was coming after COVID after two years, it was first refreshing to be able to meet people in person in a large setting, but also really the different perspectives brought about by all the various participants enabled us to really see what the experts and people who are making key decisions are thinking about the way ahead. Yes, it was a, an implementation COP, um, as Marie, you said, but the conference really got off to a really sobering start with the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres issuing a stark warning that humanity is on a, quote, highway to climate hell with its foot on the accelerator. Marie, can you tell us some of the main policy announcements that came out of the event and how significant they were? Yeah, it's 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 a very good question. And as you said in your introduction, Jennifer, um, anyone looking for something groundbreaking in the concluding uh, announcement uh, may be underwhelmed. I think it's in the nature of these uh, of these events. Um, finding an agreement between hundred more than one hundred and ninety countries is uh, extremely difficult, uh, but. Below that, uh, I think there was a lot of activity as we've uh, already talked about, and I'll I'll highlight a few of the initiatives that um, are happening. And, and to me, are saying that there's a lot of change that is really relevant to our credit analysis. Um, there is a an, an initiative under the a label of a breakthrough agenda, and and that is uh, countries getting together on particular issues. Um, as ad hoc coalitions, if you want, of uh, uh, of uh, like-minded of countries ready to move forward. There's a similar, similar initiative um, in the private sector called the First Movers Initiative, where uh, large corporates, again, are coming together on particular topics with a commitment to move forward. And that is still fairly high level, um, but then you can delineate that and, uh, um, at a, at lower level with very particular tools and solutions presented, um, whether it is about uh, adaptation, medication, finance, uh, all of that was uh, was represented. So I think there's a lot for us to, to take in as credit analysts um, that we will do uh, in the next few weeks and months away. And Robert, there was a last minute agreement on loss and damage. From your perspective, why is that announcement so important? Well, there was there was an announcement about a new insurance initiative called Global Shield. And then yeah, you're right, at the last moment, there was the loss and damage announcement. Now, I mean, they that issue has been kicked down the road for a number of cops. And it's sort of finally, they, there's an agreement to set up a fund. It's not going to be at all easy. I mean, it's, it's this question, the concept of loss and damage is not a scientific definition. It's sort of, and, and the boundary between loss and damage and adaptation is really a sort of fluid one. In the, you know, I mean, the example of the Pakistan floods was used a lot at this COP. And the Pakistan floods, I mean, there were floods only 12 years ago, which were fairly similar, the recent ones. And the, 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 the tragedy in Pakistan is that uh, the the lower part of the country is all part of the Indus floodplain and the poorest people live close to the river in informal settlements, um, which get flooded out every every 
decade or so. And sort of for adaptation terms, you'd like to re relocate these people somewhere else. In loss and damage terms, obviously, there's a very large loss every time there's a big flood. And Marie, what does this mean for some of the more vulnerable countries that you look at? Yes, uh, indeed, we rate sovereigns around the world, uh, some of which are highly exposed, not dissimilar to Pakistan, to uh, physical climate risk. Uh, and again, this year's COP happening in uh, in Egypt, in, in Africa, a lot of emphasis was on adaptation. Um, and one initiative that I, I picked up um, is an initiative proposed by the presidency, by uh, Egypt, uh, together with the United Nations to work on these adaptation plans. We published a report recently uh, that uh, showed that in our engagement with sovereigns, countries do understand their exposure to physical climate risks. That is well established. Relatively few have detailed adaptation plans that are, are ready to really be implemented. So this initiative might be, uh, again, a, a way forward where we we may see more uh, more concrete plans. And that, in turn, uh, is likely to, to help us differentiate between those that are likely to more efficiently um, adapt um, and those that, that may not. Two other interesting things, uh, Jennifer, that I thought might be worth mentioning is, one, in terms of adap uh, adaptation uh, plans, Egypt um, came up with a pipeline, if you will, of 400 global projects of various, uh, some of them are mitigation projects as well, but a lot of adaptation projects, you know, as a way to kickstart lending to poor countries. That was one of the problems that we have. So they thought, why not come up with a list of well-defined projects, which are clearly understood by the markets and which can be considered for financing. And you can... Presumably, you can think of this as a pipeline that will get added to over time. And as, as some projects are implemented, others will get added. I thought that was a nice way of thinking about how to push adaptation financing. Um, and the second, perhaps less material, was there seems to be some willingness to consider offset projects, especially for Africa in the, in the areas of forestry and agriculture and so on. So carbon credit markets, there seems to be an effort to structure them and restart that process, uh, again, as a way to get capital to poor countries, and they may be able to use it for uh, other purposes as well. One, one heading of this COP was, was that it was going to be, that it was effectively Africa's COP. And uh, yeah, there was, there was a, a, a question, an interesting question debated as to whether there was a possibility for African countries to go straight to sustainable electricity generation you know, distributed to, to avoid needing to, to go through centralization of fossil fuels. But at the same time, I think uh, one half of African countries actually have their own gas reserves now. And there's been, there's been quite a lot of oil and gas discovered in the last few years. And African countries themselves are saying, let us use some of our, our, our fossil fuel resources. In, and, and then we, we promise we will invest them in sustainable energy going forward. Uh, and this, uh, it was labeled the Implementation COP and Africa's COP, this emphasis on emerging markets. How does that bring new perspectives to climate risk? You know, we've talked about adaptation and mitigation. That adaptation uh, part of it is, is very important for Africa, isn't it, Marie? It is. Uh, it is very important when we uh, when we look at the sovereigns that we rate. Um, we face a, a range of environmental and indeed social uh, and governance risks. Uh, but 
uh, adaptation uh, independent of uh, what is happening in terms of reduction of uh, carbon emissions in the world uh, will be key to bring economic resilience. Um, so we are looking at uh, more specific plans that um, countries may uh, may undertake uh, to strengthen their uh, the, the infrastructure to uh, avoid uh, forced displacement of, of populations uh, to strengthen the uh, the healthcare system. Uh, so far, little has been. There have been a few projects, a few interesting projects tackling, for instance, coastal erosion in in Senegal as one, just a, one example. Uh, but uh, not so many that would be on a, on really on a countrywide scale and uh, to give us the confidence that resilience is being built up. In terms of the implementation COP, another interesting thing was how are we going about implementation? So last year we saw. Uh, I guess the US, EU countries themselves, but also the development banks and so on get together to create a just transition plan for the country of South Africa. How do we get South Africa to transition away from coal in a just transition manner? And uh, we didn't know what to, I mean, I I personally at least didn't know if that was one off, but it looks like this year, uh, a similar plan is being crafted for Indonesia. There's talk about Vietnam and Senegal as well. So what we are seeing is, uh, in terms of the implementation COP, we are seeing a newer approach to implementation, if you will. And this just transition concept, Swami, can you sort of explain what that means? So uh, it it sort of means uh, two things. Um, One is uh, there are uh, countries where uh, there are currently existing jobs or economic sectors that are based on fossil fuels. So if you have to make the transition, you will have to take care of the people who are employed on the employment base, the tax base, the revenue base, the economic base more broadly that these sectors currently have. And you have to make sure that they aren't, uh, they aren't left behind. Um, and then more, more broadly, uh, there is also the question of, and I think Maria has already alluded to it, that some of the poorer developing countries want to be able to grow their emissions if that needs to be, if that is needed to provide better standard of living for them. But how do you do that in a manner that still does not expose the world as a whole to catastrophic climate change? So that trade-off is also part of the overall consideration around just transition. And this intersection between climate and social risk, why is that taking more of a prominence now, Marie? It, so first, in, in our analysis, we do see that correlation between environmental and social risks for governments, uh, governments that we rate when sovereigns or, or regional and local governments. Uh, there is common exposure to environmental and, and social risk at the same time. Now, on a global scene like COP, uh, it may be that the, the last uh, two, three years and the, the two unexpected shocks uh, that we, the, the world has faced that have really touched on uh, social uh, issues have, have brought this to the fore that as the world tries to grapple with uh, forthcoming environmental risk, um, it also wants policymakers certainly ha- uh, top of mind the, the social considerations. I thought was to complement what, what Swami was saying, what, what I thought was interesting was that this uh, idea and, and 
frame, framing of a transition in a just way, whether it is within a country or uh, across countries, is also prevalent increasingly in the corporate world. Uh, I was uh, I was on a on a panel, for instance, with uh, on the just transition co- topic with uh, co panelists in uh, corporates, financial institutions. Uh, it's uh, and what they were saying there is that indeed they are approaching uh, energy transition with these social considerations in mind. I'd like to change gears a little bit and and um, ask Robert about his climate modeling and and climate risk assessment and how you're integrating some of the takeaways from COP into your analysis. This boundary between adaptation and uh, and this, this whole question about loss loss and damage is going to be really interesting. I mean, you you can imagine. All sorts of situations. I mean, some a small island in the South Pacific has just been inundated by a tsunami from a neighbouring volcano. Now, is that a is that a climate risk because the sea level has risen a bit and has you know, has caused part of the loss? And who's going to be the the arbiter of deciding what gets paid and what doesn't? And then you have the whole question of the interface with insurance because you know insurance you, you're either covered or you're not covered. And then there's a the question of defining a loss and is Loss and damage came to sort of undermine the the idea for expanding insurance to take care of people who have, who are effectively victims of the consequences of climate change. So there's a lot there's lots which has not been thought through or analysed so far, and lots of room for analytics in actually um, trying to sort some to sort out some of these issues going forward. Indeed, all these concepts of adaptation, mitigation, loss and damage, and climate finance are all sort of intertwined. And on that aspect of climate finance, um, Murray, what are you learning about financing plans or commitments for energy transition uh, from COP? Finance was, again, a, a, a very big topic at COP. There was a, a finance day dedicated to it, but really, I think it was throughout uh, present throughout the, the event. Um, the, the common thread um, behind all these discussions and, and presentations was really how to mobilize finance from different sources. I think that uh, that idea that one uh, source isn't likely to be enough to be able to uh, provide the entirety of the funding and maybe uh, not have the the whole perspective. So having um, blended finance uh, coming from uh, public sector as well as uh, as private sector, uh, blended finance is not a new tool. So uh, it is uh, something whereby an official uh, sector creditor would come in, provide a, a risk reduction, uh, and then that allows the private sector to uh, finance uh, part of the of the project or, or the initiative. Uh, but it hasn't been applied so much to, to climate, and there seems to be uh, really a, a lot of um, desire to, to move this forward. And Swami, on the corporate side, are you seeing um, some interesting developments on, on financing for climate? I think one thing I might like to point to is the first movers coalition that Marie briefly mentioned. The idea there is in terms of the corporates, some technologies are well established, whether that's renewables or uh, even electric cars. And I don't really think there's a need for any sort of uh, concerted financing there. The question really is, is how do you deal with hard to abate sectors such as steel, cement, 
airlines, shipping, aluminum, even long distance trucking. How do you deal with these sectors where the technologies aren't well proven? And what this coalition tries to do is it's really a public-private partnership where they bring in the purchasing power of large companies. Uh, so Pepsi was in one of these panels promising to buy green aluminum, for example. So you have the demand ensured, the demand side being assured, and then bringing together some form of concessionary financing from governments, some bringing technologies together and bringing people together in a way to prove some newer technologies that would be very important for the corporate sector to transition. And it's interesting you talk about uh, hard to abate sectors. Um, what uh, was discussed in terms of solutions in addressing these issues there? Um, a big part of the solution was hydrogen. And hydrogen was really seemed to be everywhere at COP. That, you know, whether it's steel or cement or, or even, you know, in some cases, airlines and so on, hydrogen is seen as a way to, as a, directly as a fuel, uh, sometimes as a way to make other intermediaries like ammonia, which can then be used to make fertilizers or other chemicals. So hydrogen was seen as a big technology uh, solution, uh, as was biofuels uh, from a slightly different context uh, as another big technology as well. Um, the third technology that's spoke about, spoken about quite a bit, but we I don't think I really heard any sort of breakthrough announcements is carbon capture and sequestration. Can you capture carbon either directly from the atmosphere or from industrial processes and, and sequester them, uh, you know, in a way? But I think those three uh, probably, but hydrogen seems to be the most that's well on its way to commercialization. We're coming to the end of our conversation and I'd like you to ask you a final question. So from all the panels and speeches and events at the conference, what surprised you the most? Uh, Robert, I'll start with you. Okay, well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to pick two takeaways, one very fast, which is the first is that I didn't hear about any any intersection between the work on climate and the work on artificial intelligence and, and the sort of the just transition from artificial intelligence, I mean, was, I think, maybe more significant in some places than the just transition of uh, climate. Um, and, and my second answer is, is to just to... To highlight a, 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 an Australian company called Fortescue, which I thought was really interesting. It's a mining company, big iron ore, iron ore operations in Western Australia, and um, it's it's I mean, effectively a mine in Australia is off grid to start with. It's sort of a long way from pre-existing infrastructure, and there's a great opportunity for this company just to completely reinvent its operations around zero carbon. And to actually set up an advisory to work with other other companies, and you know, to, to to be to use hydrogen fuels, and uh, and actually in its in its mining trucks to to store the energy of all the iron ore being taken 300 meters downhill to the coast, and so on. And uh, I was I was actually really impressed by the forward thinkingness of an Australian mining company. Anne Marie, for me, it's that the the technology frontier on all this is is moving is moving fast it's moving at different pace in different areas but it, it's uh it's moving fast we talked about the the hard to abate sectors steel cement on an expression that i hadn't used uh, heard before is possible to abate so no longer hard to abate they are possible to abate um and i think i can relate that to our, our sovereign rating assessment we have uh we we assess there the economic competitiveness and finally swami I think what struck me most was a different approach to making progress on various aspects of climate. Uh, 
historically, the focus was on getting countries or corporates to commit, to make commitments, and then, you know, sort of hoping that they follow through or at least trying to track how they're following through. But last year, and certainly this year, it seems that we now have a much more concerted, proactive approach by key stakeholders to move things forward. So three examples there. One is you have the just transition partnerships that I talked about, South Africa and then Indonesia, Vietnam, focus on countries, get the job done sort of approach. The other is the first movers coalition on the hard to abate sectors. Again, take a, take a sector, bring all the key parties together, solve the problem, right? And then the third is Egypt's making a list of uh, projects, right? If you're, if you're not able to let, take, get financed adaptation projects, get key parties together, make a list of well-defined projects and push that. So it seems that there is a much more focused, proactive way of trying to make progress rather than just getting people to make commitments and tracking how they are fulfilling them. Sounds like a lot of uh, positive developments noted there. Marie, Swami, and Robert, thanks so much for joining me to share your insights. And that's our show for today. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Wong, and this is Moody Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.